Folgets next week. England today, I'm going to read the second episode from C.F. Andrews' book, Sadhu Sundar Singh. I'm reading from chapter 3, entitled The Vision, which is um, shortly after Sundar Singh lost his mother. She was the closest, most dearest person to him in his life, and it hit him really hard. Then uh, his encounter with Christ and chapter 4, Forsaking All, and further from there. I apologize that the first section is a little bit uh, tinny and bright. I think I had plugged my headphones in by mistake, but from uh, the second part onwards, it's a clearer, um, more full sound. The meaning will hopefully not be lost, though. The deepest sorrow of all came to Sundar Singh in 1902, at the age of 14, when his mother died. Close upon the death of his mother, he lost also his elder brother, whom he loved very dearly indeed. This double blow made plain to him the utter emptiness of human life apart from God and the awful desolation of death. For he had never been obliged to look death in the face before in his own home. And now when this double sorrow swept over him in an overwhelming flood, it seemed to blot out all happiness. Along with it, there came a sense of rebellion against God himself. Yet while he rebelled, the longing for God, which was deep in his inmost soul, continued. Whenever he recalled to mind, after he had become a Christian, the tragic sorrow of those early days, a look of pain used to come into his eyes, and his voice would break with emotion, for he loved his mother more tenderly than anyone else on earth. And the whole of his life seemed to be shattered when she could be no more with him to encourage him and guide him in the right path. With a young lad so precocious in his religious temperament, the spiritual shock was more severe than even than mental and physical. He had just reached the impressionable age when such sorrow would be felt most. The anchorage of his mother's faith, to which his own life had hitherto been so firmly attached, was suddenly severed by a single blow, and he began in his grief to swing to the other extreme of blank despair. He felt that he had now no sure foundation left. And terrible questionings arose in his own mind, which could not be laid aside. At such a crisis of spiritual bewilderment, neither the kindly old Sikh sadhu nor the Hindu pundit who taught him yoga was able to minister the healing and spiritual help that, was, that he so sorely needed. 
Their own lives had been sheltered from storms, and they were powerless in the presence of this tempestuous upheaval of his soul. It seemed at one time likely to break, to bring shipwreck to all his earlier faith. His father's sorrow was pitiful to witness, but Sunda had no comfort to give him, nor could the father give any consolation to his son. In certain passages of his own writings, where he describes this time of sorrow, Sunda tells us how the need for some religious assurance of God's presence became more and more imperative. He felt each day that he must find out that he must find out the truth which lay behind the veil of human existence. At whatever cost, the ultimate questions of life and death had to be faced to the bitter end. During the two years which followed, there was added to this inward life one further feature which drove the rebellion in his heart still deeper. He had gone to a mission primary school which had just been opened by the American Presbyterian Church in his own village. His wish in doing so was to improve his secular education, which had been on the whole neglected. But he found that one of the textbooks set for special study was the New Testament. This seemed to him an insidious way of trying to convert him, and as a high-spirited lad, he was deeply wounded to think that if he continued to attend the school, he would be compelled to read the Christian scriptures. He determined at last as a matter of conscience not to receive religious instruction under compulsion at all. Therefore, at the end of the year, with his father's consent, he left the mission school and entered a government school instead, even though it was three miles away from his own home. This encounter with the Christian teachers at the school had aroused a latent hostility within him, which was increased by the recent suffering he'd gone through owing to his mother's death. He went to extreme lengths and led a party of youths who used to make attacks on the missionaries themselves whenever they stood up to preach in the bazaar. Sometimes these lads would throw stones and mud at the preachers and Sunda became their ring leader. This form of violence and action, which was alien to his nature, came to a head in the middle of December 1903, when Sunda brought into his father's courtyard a copy of the Christian Gospels and set fire to it in public. Such a public burning of a sacred religious book was an event unheard of before in the village of Rampur. His father was bewildered and alarmed at his son's extravagant action, which seemed to be altogether unlike him and to have a touch of madness about it. Why, he asked his young son, have you done such a mad thing? Surely you are mad to do a thing like that. The boy made no reply, for his mind was truly distraught. He was now over 15 and was thus rapidly approaching the age of early manhood. For this begins sooner in India than in the West. Youth is a time in which headstrong action is always a dangerous possibility. 
a wild resolution seemed to possess him that he could either find out, that he would either find out the truth that was behind all this agonizing conflict or else put an end to himself by committing suicide. Thus the inner struggle went on, unbroken and unappeased. Though, he wrote, according to my own ideas at that time, I thought that I had done a good deed in burning the gospel, yet my unrest of heart increased and for the two following days I was very miserable. That reminds me of Augustine's saying, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you, Lord. Back to the sing book. On the third day, when I could bear it no longer, I got up at three in the morning and prayed that if there was a God at all, he would reveal himself to me. What followed formed the greatest turning point in all his life. It must be given in his own words. My intention was, he said, that if I got no satisfaction, I would place my head upon the railway line when the five o'clock train passed by and kill myself. If I got no satisfaction in my life, I thought I would get it in the next. I was praying and praying, but received no answer, and I prayed for half an hour longer, hoping to get peace. At 4.30 a.m., I saw something of which I had no idea previously. In the room where I was praying, I saw a great light. I thought the place was on fire. I looked around, but could find nothing. The thought came to me that this might be an answer that God had sent me. Then I, as I prayed and looked into the light, I saw the form of the Lord Jesus Christ. It had such an appearance of glory and love. If it had been some Hindu incarnation, I would have prostrated myself before it. But it was the Lord Jesus Christ whom I had been insulting a few days before. I felt that a vision like this would not come out of my own imagination. I heard a voice saying in Hindustani, how long will you persecute me? I have come to save you. You were praying to know the right way. Why do you not take it? So I fell at his feet and got this wonderful peace, which I could not get anywhere else. This was the joy I was wishing to get. This was heaven itself. When I got up, the vision had all disappeared. But although the vision disappeared, the peace and the joy have remained with me ever since. I went off and told my father and that I had become a Christian. He told me, go and lie down and sleep. Why, only the day before yesterday you burnt the Bible. And now you say you're a Christian? I said, well, I have discovered now that Jesus Christ is alive and have determined to be his follower. Today I am his disciple and I am going to serve him. Every part of this tremendous experience was so burnt into his young mind that he would never for a moment afterwards question its supreme validity. Others might argue with him about it when he told the story openly. Some might even make light of it as an hallucination. But for him it meant such complete assurance of the spiritual reality of what he had seen and heard that he was ready to prove it 
by the sacrifice of his own life and all that he held dear. For it changed his heart so completely that he became a new man in Christ Jesus. All things had passed away, never to return. The darkness had vanished before the dawn of a glorious new day. Above all, he had found at last that deep abiding peace for which he had striven so long in vain. For there was now a serenity and a steadfast joy in his heart that passed all human understanding. No trial or tribulation on, the, on this earth could ever take it away. What I saw, he writes, was no imagination of my own. Up to that moment I hated Jesus and did not worship him. If I had been thinking of Buddha or Krishna, I might have imagined what I saw. But for I was in the habit of worshipping them. No, it was no dream. When you have just had a cold bath, you don't dream. It was a reality, the living Christ. He can turn an enemy into a preacher of the gospel. He has given me his peace, not for a few hours merely, but for 16 years. A peace so wonderful that I cannot describe it, but I can testify to its reality. Sundar Singh absolutely distinguished between this outward event, which came in quite an unexpected manner before his eyes, when he had no thought of what was going to happen, and his own frequent experience of visions, which came when he was expecting them through meditation and inner contemplation. I have had visions, he writes, and I know how to distinguish them, but Jesus I have only seen once. When someone in Switzerland asked him the direct question whether what he saw on that early morning was objective or subjective, he replied with all possible emphasis that it was no subjective vision, but something objective and external to himself. It came without any conscious imagination on his part. Indeed, he was so, it was so contrary to anything he had ever imagined that it brought with it a startling shock of blank surprise, leaving him almost stunned by its sudden appearance. This objective character of the incident was always insisted upon by him, however much others might seek to weaken his evidence or try to prove to him that it might have come merely from his own excited imagination. He would strongly assert that the difference between an inner vision of the mind and this outward appearance was absolute. He alone could give the final proof in such a matter and he had offered that proof in its most convincing form by living an entirely different life. So changed that he had been obliged to face suffering, hardship, persecution and even death itself for Christ's sake. He had done so with joy and gladness. Christ's own standard might be applied. By their fruits ye shall know them. Do men gather grapes from thorns and figs from thistles? Was it indeed, he asked, for his whole new conduct of life from that moment forward to be based on a mere picture of the mind? Such things, if self-created, were bound to vanish. 
but the living experience of Christ had been abiding. Never at any time did he regard the, this manifestation of Christ's presence as a matter to boast about, as if he himself had been peculiarly favored by receiving it. Rather, it humbled him in his utmost heart with a sense of his own willfulness and rebellion. The spirit of enmity which had once possessed him had only been overcome by Christ when it had reached its furthest point. He had fought against the Christian faith in the most public manner and had burnt the one sacred book that told him the good news concerning the kingdom of God. Nevertheless, when his inner heart of rebellion was thus most bitter, he had been changed completely and conquered by Christ's own forgiving love. There were those fortunate ones, he used to say, who had never sinned and rebelled as he had done. There were others who had lived from their childhood with Christ as the one supreme reality. These indeed, these needed no objective proof of what they truly and inwardly believed. In all humility, Sundar Singh would place himself at the feet of the least of these as altogether undeserving of the love of God, which God had showered upon him. They could receive the blessing of Christ when he said, Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. But he could never win that blessing, for he, like Thomas, had been very slow to believe. His, therefore, was the lesser faith and the lower place in God's kingdom. With Mary Magdalene, he was among those who had loved much because they were forgiven much. Chapter 4, Forsaking All The spiritual shock which came to him in the birth pangs of her soul's anguish could never afterwards be forgotten by Sundar Singh. The victory had been won through the midst of the agony itself. It had been for him, in very truth, a change from death unto life. From the lowest depth of despair, he had risen to a joyful assurance of hope. In the end, as his daily life settled down again into or to its normal level, he could say with all the fullness of joy, Thanks be to God, who giveth us the victory through our Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. But in the midst of all this marvelous newfound joy and peace, one fact weighed heavily upon his mind. He had publicly burnt the Christian scriptures and openly derided the Christian faith in the presence of his father. This act had been so public that Sadar Sher Singh, who was not a Christian, had rebuked him. Though he knew that Christ's great word of forgiveness had been uttered, pardoning freely this act of rebellion along with all the wrong of the past, yet the shame of it was all the deeper as the knowledge of Christ's forgiveness became more assured. While I was with him at Kotka, some years later, he would still refer to this incident of the burning of the Bible with bitter shame. Later on, when he was in Europe, he would speak of it as something which 
could never be forgotten. Many times over, he would come back to it in his addresses as the most desperate act of his own rebellion against God. He had thus denied or defied God's love. These hands, he would say with remorse, have burnt and scorned the word of God. They are the hands of a sinner whom Christ's love alone has redeemed. My only ground of pardon and forgiveness is the cross of Jesus my Lord. The memory of what had happened deepened in this way his penitence and faith. It was in reality the very fullness of his loyalty to Christ which made the thought of his own disloyalty so poignant. It is always like a thorn in my life, he said on one occasion, that I was once an enemy of Christ. That thought still humbles me to the dust. Thus by a strange paradox, because he was now so certain that Christ loved him and had forgiven even this sin of denial and derision, for that very reason it had become difficult to forgive himself. The thought of what he had done made him all the more penitent. While it revealed to him the depth of his own failure, it also brought home to him, as nothing else could have, the infinite power of Christ's love. Just as Christ had sacrificed himself in love for him, so he, Sundar Singh, must now sacrifice himself in love for Christ. Hereafter, his, all, his whole life must be in keeping with St. Paul's words. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. So that, that rings of that song. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. I just love those words. Those who have themselves gone through the same dark anguish of conversion can understand best of all both the intensity of his inner conflict and the joy of his release. Judah and David, are you agreeing with loving God and praying to Him. They can also appreciate how the memory of the special deed of shame still remained behind. And by the way, Judah and David are my budgies in the background there. They can also appreciate how the memory of the special deed of shame still remained behind impressed upon his own personal life like a thorn in the flesh to bullet him, lest at any time he should be exalted above 
measure, for it had been with him a, a struggle of life and death so terrible and vast that the scars were left upon his memory for many years to come, even after the wounds had been healed. And sometimes when the joy was greatest, the consciousness of his own ungracious deed would return with its sharpest pang of remorse. There's no more wonderful bond of love in the world than that which binds the soul of man to his Redeemer. And Sundar Singh, immature as he was, and as yet only dimly aware of the amazing inner power of the Christian life, leapt at once to this true conclusion. He was bound to Christ forever with the cords of love, and therefore he must serve him as his Lord. Many days were passed in solitude and inner communion during which the full sense of Christ's forgiveness came home to him more and more in the silence of his own soul. That's beautiful. He received along with the sense of forgiveness the commission from his divine Savior to go out and tell others what great things had been done whereby his whole life had been redeemed for service. Seeds were then sown in his heart which were to bear fruit afterwards in his repeated journeys to Tibet. We have to bear in mind at this point the fact that Sundar Singh was not yet a grown-up man. He was still hardly more than 15 years of age, and though early manhood comes quickly in the East, the authority of the home is very strong indeed, and the father's word is law. Sardar Shir Singh was head of the joint family, and this made the weight of his authority all the more powerful. Sundar knew well that for a lad of his age to challenge the whole family, by declaring himself a Christian would mean an intolerable offence. It would seek to strike at the root of all parental discipline and of that loyalty to ancestral religion of which excuse me, the Sikhs are rightly so proud. It was certain to be understood and was also likely neither to be forgiven nor forgotten. Yet this is what he at once determined to do. Furthermore, we need to keep in mind that he was entirely alone during these days. He had no one to consult who could advise or sympathize with him. All he had was about all he, all that he was about to do was done with one companion only at his side, Christ himself. To declare to the world what had taken place and to explain the change in his own inner life was to meet with incredulity on every side and to be treated as one who was insane. In his own home, since his mother's death, there was no one who could understand him. 
His brother, who was still living, had no sympathy whatever with his spiritual struggles. His sister also, absorbed in her own religious devotions, seemed to have been unable to understand him. His uncle and his father both regarded him as mad, and they possessed what was to them convincing proof of the fact. Had he not only a few days before actually burnt the Christian scriptures, what could be more insane than to do such a public act one day and then declare himself a Christian only three days later? The boy, they would say, had always been eccentric. Now his eccentricity had taken the more violent turn of madness. His mind had become utterly unhinged. Such were the thoughts and sentiments which came naturally to his father and uncle when Sundar Singh declared himself before them both to be a follower of Christ. Leave him alone was the advice of his shrewd old father. If he's left alone, he will soon get over his madness. So they left him alone at first. But it was all in vain. Sundar stood his ground even when the whole family refused to eat with him unless he gave up his absurd idea of becoming a Christian. Those who had joined with him in deriding the Christians before began to persecute him in turn, but he paid them no heed. Everything was done at first by persuasion and entreaty, and then at last by the most cogent appeals to his pride as a member of the Sikh community. The leading members of his family, finding other appeals vain, pressed him at least to give way so far as to refrain from openly declaring himself a Christian. The inducement was offered to him that he might remain a secret believer without any open profession of his Christian faith. This last trial was perhaps the hardest that he was called upon to bear, for there were many things that made the temptation of secrecy especially urgent and plausible in his case. He was not yet of legal age to act alone, and therefore he might easily excuse himself from making an open confession until he grew older. But an inner voice seemed always to tell him that he must not deny his Lord, and he remained firm. When at last his father and uncle knew that nothing would induce him to be silent, they adopted sterner measures. They threatened him with public exclusion from the family and at last carried out their own threat. He was also excommunicated by his own act from the Sikh religion. I remember, he writes, the night when I was driven out of my home, the first night. When I came to know my Savior, I told my father and my brother and my other relations. At first they did not take much notice, but afterward they thought that it was a great dishonor that I should become a Christian. And so I was driven out of my home. The first night I had to spend in cold weather under a tree, I had had no such experience. 
I was not used to living in such a place without a shelter. I began to think, yesterday and before that I used to live in the midst of luxury at my home, but now I am shivering here and hungry and thirsty and without a shelter, with no warm clothes and no food. I had to spend the whole night under the tree. But I remember the wonderful joy and peace in my heart, the presence of my Savior. I held my New Testament in my hand. I remember that night as my first night in heaven. Sounds like my buddy David is agreeing of the presence of the Lord. I remember the wonderful joy that made me compare that time with the time when I was living in a luxurious home. In the midst of luxuries and comfort, I could not find peace in my heart. The presence of the Savior changed the suffering into peace. Ever since then, I have felt the presence of the Savior. It was legally necessary for him to remain till he was 16 years of age before he could be baptized. During the interval, he went to Ludiana and stayed with Dr. Weary and Dr. Fife. But since there was some danger of an outbreak of mob violence if he was baptized so near his own home as Ludiana, he was taken to Simla and there baptized on his birthday, September the 3rd, 1905, when he had reached the legal age of 16 years. The Reverend J. Redman of Simla had spent his whole ministry in India, carrying on with wonderful humility and devotion his master's work of love. No more gentle and tender father and God could have been given to Sundar than this aged servant of Christ. His home was always open and a prophet's chamber was kept for Sundar himself to occupy whenever he passed through Simla. What he owed to Mr. Redman and his wife can hardly be told in words. On both sides it was a profound joy to meet thus from time to time in fellowship, communion and prayer. Mr. Redman is now dead and Canon Chandulal, one of the Sadhu's closest friends, has taken his place. When Sundar came to Simla in 1905 as a Christian convert, altogether unknown except by the missionaries at Ludiana, Mr. Redman questioned him thoroughly concerning his faith in Christ and afterwards wrote about him briefly as follows. I was deeply impressed by his sincerity. I examined him carefully and asked him a great many questions about the chief facts of the gospel. Sundar Singh replied to my entire satisfaction and he evinced even then an extraordinary knowledge of the life and teaching of Christ. Then I inquired into his personal experience of Christ as a Savior. Again, I was more than satisfied. 
and I told him I would be very glad to baptize him on the following day, which was a Sunday. He replied that he desired to be baptized because it was the will of Christ, but he felt so sure that the Lord had called him to witness that even if I could not see my way to baptize him, he would have to go out and preach. It had been pointed out by Dr. Hayler, or Hayler that the 23rd Psalm was used as a part of the service in St. Thomas's Church, Simla, when Sundar Singh was openly admitted to membership in the body of Christ. The opening words were prophetic of the life which he now chose to live. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore can I lack nothing. Perhaps these words would have been the one text which he would have chosen for that solemn moment of dedication and blessing. He often referred to them in later years. For the psalm of the Good Shepherd and the 53rd chapter of Isaiah were his two favorite passages in the Old Testament, which molded and fashioned his whole life.